Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. One of the most heart-rending events on these anniversaries of 9-11 is the solemn reading of the names of each of the over 3,000 dead. And I have seen that covered on television. Uh, you see the, all the families of these people gathered. Uh, you can just see the grief, uh, the, the deep, deep sorrow that that's caused. And it, you know, you'd have to have uh, a heart. Uh, You'd have to have Dick Cheney's heart not to be moved to tears by something like that. <laughs> uh, you know, it's and it's it's and it's entirely fitting and proper that this is done. Uh, but for me, accepting that only brings out in stark relief our own collective either inability or refusal to say the names of even a tiny number of those who have died at the hands of our military. That was my co-host, Harvey Bennett, and you'll hear a lot more from Harvey and some clips from Jeremy Scale. But first, my name is Jim Walgermuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This show is on stations across the country, thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We are also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and on your phones. Just go to your podcast app and search Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Just go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. So take it away, Harvey. This is our second show. Uh where we're focusing on the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, which has produced a tsunami of uh, articles, speeches, uh, TV coverage, uh, even documentaries, much of it around a rallying cry of never forget. Well, of course, we cannot forget the tragic loss of life and the horrendous grieving that that is that caused and, and continues to cause among so many people. And so never forget in that way. Yeah, that's understandable. But when we say that, are we really clear about what it is we cannot forget? And what exactly must we remember? And what must we understand in order to do what we must as a society, as a nation, in order to avoid a similar fate in the future? Well, I know Jim and I hope that we will never forget the response to these attacks by the George W. Bush administration. They're ginning up of fear, fear-mongering, to carry out an agenda, which included, of course, the Patriot Act, which stripped the American people of their constitutional rights, 
including warrantless wiretapping, extreme surveillance, of course, the profiling of Muslim Americans, suspension of habeas corpus, even surveillance of people's library books that they checked out. I didn't don't want to overlook the fact that uh, in the middle of all this, one group that stood up to this campaign and refused to cooperate were the librarians in this country. And I'm very proud to be the husband of a librarian who was among those who just would not carry out those wishes, even those orders. Uh, again, uh, the attack and occupation of Afghanistan, uh, just a few weeks after the 9-11 uh, attacks, which uh, included horrendous bombing campaigns, killing hundreds of thousands of innocent men, women, and children. And as we just know, uh, only concluded a couple of weeks ago after 20 years with the of course, utter defeat of the United States and the victory of the Taliban. Uh, their detaining of Afghan men and boys even with no evidence of association with Al-Qaeda and then shipping them to Guantanamo to be abused and tortured. Over 740 uh, men and young men uh, were eventually I'm detained or imprisoned at Guantanamo, and all but 40 of them have been released with no charges. So you wonder what those people, those 740, uh, will never forget. Uh, then there was the campaign of lies abetted by compliant media and <clears throat> to take us to war, an illegal and unconstitutional war in Iraq. But on a more positive note, in addition to the librarians, let us never forget the courage of Representative Barbara Lee as the sole member of Congress to vote against the authorization for the use of military force in this climate of hysteria. She bravely repeated the words of the pastor at the National Cathedral, let us not become the evil we seek to defeat. As courageous as this was, the truth we needed to understand even more was and is that we already were perpetrators of the evil we claim to be determined to defeat. Like it or not, never forget works both ways. Now, although most Americans would react with puzzlement or denial at any attempt to explain our country's history of violent military and clandestine interventions around the world, one particular example might resonate. This is, in fact, the first 9-11. Yes, on September 11th, 1973, 
the elected leader of Chile, Salvador Allende, was overthrown and killed by a military coup with backing of the CIA. General Augusto Pinochet was installed as the new leader with the strong backing of the United States. He immediately began arresting, torturing, and killing political progressives and their families in a reign of terror that was never criticized or countered by the United States. Um, now we can hear. Uh, I, I, Harvey, I got a BBC, just a quick news thing from BBC okay. about that. Tuesday, September the 11th. Out of an early autumn sky, two jets launch a deadly attack on a potent symbol of democracy and freedom in a nation's capital. The result is fire, suicide, and ultimately the death or disappearance of over 3,000 people. Shockwaves are felt around the world. This is the story of one day in September. This is the other 9-11. Does that ring a bell? That rings a bell. That's two jets. Two jets and attacking uh, symbols of democracy and 3,000 people, 3,000 people killed. The other 9-11 that people, when you say never forget, well, I bet you hardly anybody even knew about that other 9-11. So- a lot, of, a lot of Chileans have never forgotten. That's right, a lot of Chileans. And the thing about it is, uh, is that um, uh, we always wonder who was behind the terrorists of our 9-11 uh, in 2001. And yet we know who was behind the terrorists, meaning the military, that overthrew the freely elected government of Salvador Allende, and that was the United States. Here's Noam Chomsky. Here's Noam Chomsky commenting on that other 9-11. What about Chile? Kissinger was the point man pressing hard for the overthrow of the Allende government. Two tracks. One track was just straight and violence. You know, military coup, then there was a soft track, make the economy scream, make it impossible for people to live. Okay. Uh, they finally got what they wanted, instituted a vicious dictatorship, which incidentally was the first 9 11. What happened in 2001 was the second 9 11. The first one was much worse by any measure. We translate it to per capita terms, which is the right way. It would be as if on what we call 9-11, uh, 30,000 people have been killed outright. Uh, 500,000 have been tortured. Uh, the government was overthrown. A vicious dictatorship instituted. Uh, terror, torture, horrors, you know, celebrated 
not only by the by the United States celebrated it, uh, poured funds in to help the new dictatorship. Uh, international agencies did the same. They'd been withholding funds from Allende, poured them in. The neoliberals, people who've been running the world for the last 40 years, loved it. They moved in to advise the government. Uh, Friedrich Hayek, the moral leader of neoliberalism, visited and said he was impressed by the freedom under Pinochet. said he couldn't find a single person in Chile who thought, who didn't think there was more freedom under Pinochet dictatorship than under Allende. Somehow he couldn't hear the cries of anguish from the torture chambers in the Via Grimaldi and others. Well, that's the reaction to the first 9-11. I'm sure there are jihadis who are who celebrated the second 9-11. We think they're terrible. We're much worse, you know. Take a look at ourselves. Is anybody gonna talk about that on the anniversary of 9-11? Uh, maybe you will, I will handful of other people will be denounced, of course. But it's true. That was the first 9-11, much worse than what happened in September uh, 2001. Uh, okay, goes on. Uh, so if you want to know what we can do, we can begin by educating ourselves, by rising to some minimal moral level so we can pay attention to what we do and what we have done. And so there's Noam Chomsky in a, in a recent interview with the Jacobin uh, podcast um, talking about uh, talking about 9-11, our 9-11, and the idea that we must mm-hmm. remember it. And, and Hari, to me, that harkens back to what Father Daniel Berrigan said one year after 9-11, which it was basically, um, well, he didn't use the chickens coming home to roost, but that's basically what he meant. Well, it's finally come home. It's finally come home. So- And we know what it was. Yeah, and so it's important- You know our history. Yeah, it's important to us to remember that, to never forget why some of these things happened. Yeah, so, you know, if Americans don't know their history regarding our actions abroad, and most of them don't, uh, most of them have at least heard of the Indian Wars, which exterminated and dispossessed roughly 99% of the native population of North America. Most have heard about the African slave trade and centuries of forced labor. Most have heard of the KKK of Jim Crow, of the lynchings, of the discrimination in jobs, housing, education, and not to mention the criminal justice system, which has incarcerated hundreds of thousands of black, young black men, uh, part of that, most of that coming from the crime bill 
that was uh, sponsored by the now President Joe Biden. How many of those never forget 9-11 voices acknowledge our nation's shameful legacy in the ongoing acts of violence or call for making amends for the cruelties inflicted on so many by the white power structure? Last week, we heard from post 9-11 vets Garrett Rippenhagen and Andrian Kinney of Veterans for Peace as they described how their lives were forever changed by 9-11 and what they will never forget as they ended up fighting the wars, the global war on terror, as it's called. Well, this week I learned about the 2013 book and film Dirty Wars by Jeremy Scahill. He describes how 9-11 was used to launch the global war on terror and how he believes our actions have had and continue to have the effect of making us less safe. In this 2013 interview with Vice News, he argues that the use of drones and airstrikes to minimize US troop casualties is apparently effective in keeping the mayhem and murder out of sight and out of mind among the general US population. However, he believes we're only inspiring more potential recruits for Al Qaeda and other terrorist organizations from among those who will never forget their innocent loved ones who have died. In 2015, retired General Michael Flynn, yes, that Michael Flynn, the one demonized by liberal media, expressed the same opinion that drone killings, quote unquote, do more harm than good. Let's listen to what Jeremy Scahill had to say with the Vice News interviewer. You know, I mean, I, you know, as an American going to multiple countries and hearing in different languages the same sentiment, which is that, you know, I used to think of America in a totally different way until the drone strike happened or until the night raid happened. I mean, I really did get a clear sense that we are making more enemies than we are killing terrorists. Um, I mean, I think we've reached a point with the drone program where there should be a moratorium on drone strikes. Uh, regardless of if you support them as a smarter way of waging war or not is irrelevant to me. Just on the basis that we don't know how many people we've killed, the identities of many of the people that we killed, and if they've even had a connection to terrorism. If we're not doing an analysis of uh, the potential impact to global stability and our own national security from our own actions, taken in pursuit, supposedly, of confronting a terrorist threat, um, then we're not participating in the democratic process. We've just ceded the sort of conscience to those in power. Champions of the drone strategy will say that, you know, look, the alternative to the drone strategy are, are raids, interrogations, yeah, uh, and what I have you. I disagree with that. I mean, I think the, the alternative is to stop doing it. Um, you know, I mean, we, 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 don't, we don't think creatively uh, in this country about our foreign policy. There's almost no new ideas in warfare. There's just new technology. All the ideas we've seen, counterinsurgency, all this, it's all been recycled from different wars and studying of different wars. Um, I mean, my position may sound like a radical one, but I actually think it's a sensible, uh, pragmatic one which is that I, I believe that our own national security policy is degrading our national security. Um, and I think you could make a nationalist argument, although I'm not a nationalist, I think you could make a nationalist argument as to why this is bad for America. Um, because if you're giving people an incentive, uh, the drone program is a tremendous, pro a tremendous propaganda value for Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, for Tehriki Taliban in Pakistan. 
Um, we are effectively aiding the groups that are organizing terrorist attacks against the United States. At the end of the day, you know, I, I, I think that um, you know, policymakers need to step back and look at what the actual impact has been. I think they're, they're living in la-la land when they say things like, oh, only a small number of civilians have been killed. I mean, those of us that are journalists working on the ground in those countries just know that that's, it's just a fraudulent claim. Uh, you know, I don't think the president it's is It's partly a matter of how being a combatant is defined to some degree. Right? Oh, you're absolutely correct. I mean, they, they, we have a policy now where anyone who's a military-aged male that's killed in a drone strike is just posthumously declared either a militant or a terrorist. I mean, that's that's a grotesque form of pre-crime. And military age, that's between 70 and 15? Well, that right? I mean, it depends on, I mean, it, it depends on who you ask. Some, some would limit it and say, you know, that it's between, you know, 18 and 40. There were some reports that they were doing it anyone above the age of 15 all the way up to 70. And, you know, part of it is because of the way that secrets are kept in this country. We don't actually know the extent of the policy when the, you know, we're talking about these signature strikes. We don't actually know. And, and in the case of American citizens, the American people are not aware of what one would do to end up on a kill list, short of being indicted, you know, charged with a crime. I mean, how does someone, what, what gets you on the kill list? We don't actually know the answer to that. But to be very crude about it, if I'm dropping a bomb from you an F-16, be crude. Yeah. if I'm dropping a bomb from an F-16, uh, you know, it's, it's a 500-pound bomb, uh, and the number of potential civilian casualties is enormous. Now, what defenders of the drone program will say is that, look, this is a grenade-like weapon, and you can hover, and so you can make more precise determinations as to who you're killing. Right. So, you know, I take your point about how, look, another scenario is that we just stop intervening in this way. But, you know, can you see the idea that the drone, by virtue of being a scalpel as opposed to a machete, that that well, can I mean, be on, a, tec on a technical level, the, the, the blast radius from, you know, a, um, a missile fired from a Predator drone or a Reaper drone is much smaller than, for instance, a cruise missile. And that's part of the debate that people have is, like, which is a... You know, which is less likely to incur huge civilian deaths as a result, or collateral deaths, whatever they want to call them. But I would turn it around on you and, and ask you this. So if we're talking about a declared war that the United States is in against a uniformed military, um, and there are bombing raids, that applies to what you're saying. You know, you're, you're dropping that 500-pound bomb, civilians die in war. We all know that. How would you set the standard, though, for when the U.S. has the authority to go in and bomb targets in Yemen or Pakistan? What is, what is the standard that should be applied there? Um, is it that the threat is imminent against the United States? Is it that these are just bad people? Is it that they have, they are, there's chatter that indicates that they're plotting with someone in the United States to do an attack? What is the standard that, that you would sort of use to say, you know what, I believe that the United States of America has a right to send an F-16 over to bomb these people or to send a predator drone to take them out? That's, the, that's part of the debate that I think we're not actually having in this country. See, what I would assert is that when we do this in Pakistan or Yemen, and we are attacking people that are not engaged in imminent plots, maybe they're trying to plot against the United States, but it's not like a sniper pointing a rifle at a crowd of civilians and you say, oh shit, what are we going to do? You don't run to go get an indictment of this person uh, you know, and, and, and go through the courts to have permission to take him out. You'll, you'll try to take him alive, and if necessary, you'll shoot him to prevent him from you know, killing all these innocent people. And that's often the scenario that's presented to the American people by Democrats and Republicans alike. If we don't do this, they're going to hit us. There's very little evidence to suggest that many of the people we've killed represented an actual imminent threat to the United States. So for me, the question is, how do we deal with those people? <clears throat> how about those seven children? Yeah. <clears throat> imminent threats? How about that, how about that aid worker? Mm-hmm. Imminent threat. I mean, that's an example about of the drones and what the drones can do. Yes, and remember uh, when Trump 
killed the lead general of Iran. Yeah. In Baghdad. He said there was an imminent threat. Yeah. And everybody started parsing. What does imminent mean? What is imminent? I know. What does imminent mean? And we almost literally almost went to war with Iran over that. That's right. That's right. So Jeremy has some other clips um, from this Vice interview, which in, include uh, him speaking about Obama and the chance to be humanitarians. One of the big points he makes is, you know, <clears throat> uh, liberals uh, who, you know, condemned George W. Bush for, for his drone strikes all of a sudden uh, when Obama was president and he increased drone strikes, there was no outcry against Obama. Right. Um, <clears throat> uh, when he killed an American citizen, there was no outcry. So his, his point was that, you know, if you say you have principles around something like killing people with drones based on this highly questionable uh, signals intelligence uh, <clears throat> and killing civilians. You know, if, if you don't equally oppose it when, when it's your guy doing it, then you don't have any principles. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's listen to a little bit of what Jeremy has to say about Obama. Yeah, let's get Obama in there. That would be good. <laughs> I mean, it would, it would require reimagining our role in the world. Um, I mean, I would love to be a citizen of a nation that was, that was actually perceived around the world for credible reasons, to be about uh, using the force of our morals to undermine despots and dictators. I just don't think that we are in that position right now. I think President Obama had a real opportunity when he first came into office to not fully, re you know, it's such a cliche, cliche to say re hit the reset button but to, to tilt the policy in a different direction, or at least the rhetoric emanating from the United States, and to a degree did that, but largely I think the message that's been sent by his presidency is that it doesn't matter much who is in power in the US. The US military policy is gonna remain sort of static. I'll give you a concrete example. When I was in Southern Yemen talking to tribal leaders and asking them about uh, various leaders of Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and they were saying, look, we see these guys all the time. They go to restaurants, they go to the mosque, we, we see them all the time. Your drones don't ever, you know, can't ever find them. They seem to find all sorts of villagers to hit, but they don't find the leaders of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And I said, what would it take for you guys, if the United States demanded their extradition, to hand them over? And, and almost all of the tribal leaders I, said, I, I talked to said, if you stop sending the drones and you actually started funding projects in our areas that were about schools or water purification, um, helping us with our civilian infrastructure, you would give an incentive to local people to say, we don't want these parasites in our community. I, I think we've undermined our own possibility of bringing people to justice because we've fast forwarded to the military response. So those kind of direct contacts, whether it's tribes in, in Yemen or Pakistan, um, or in a good faith gesture saying, we're gonna give these nations a chance to hand these individuals over who we've indicted because we have evidence that they're involved with terrorist plots. And if they don't, then you can go back to the drawing board of this stuff. We haven't even tried it since 9-11. It's almost non-existent, our, the law enforcement approach to it. But yes, I do think that, that those kinds of people, the people ties would be far more profound in their impact than going straight to the military solution or arming of rebel groups. You know, he talks about it doesn't matter which administration you have, uh, our, our military, uh, 
approach to the world doesn't seem to change. And I remember uh, Andrew Vasevich talking about that uh, at Veterans for Peace, also in his book called Washington Rules. Uh, and it's really about almost this deep state, <laughs> national security state, and how <clears throat> presidents are, uh, you know, who think they're going to come in and change things soon, change their tune because they uh, they feel like they don't really, they're not really free to change that. You also um, told me to look up a clip about Jeremy at a uh, 2013 um, speech at the Chicago Socialist event. Right, he, uh, he and Glenn Greenwald were the featured speakers that night. And he really spent a lot of time talking about uh, the backstory that never seems to be reported uh, uh, regarding the history of people who become the victims of our violence. Uh, and as he says, you know, nobody uh, gets up in the morning one day and decides to be a terrorist. <laughs> you know, each of them have a story, a life story. Uh, and uh, he, he went into considerable detail about the life of uh, Anwar al-Awlaki, the uh, Muslim imam who was an American citizen who, uh, Barack Obama uh, ordered killed by a drone strike, uh, and and he was so uh, demonized, all with just nothing more than uh, circumstantial evidence. He'd never been charged with any crime or or with uh, conducting any or directing any kind of terrorist attack on the United States. I mean, he, he did become uh, quite extreme in his uh, sermons, uh, but this was in reaction to US uh, actions against Muslims, both in the US and around the world and in the, the wars that they launched. So it's understandable, but recognizing uh, of our quote unquote enemy, which allows, which that is what allows the atrocities that are always committed in war. First, we dehumanize. And he couches this as a bedrock principle of American exceptionalism. We all hear about that term all the time. And that is that American lives are worth more than the lives of those others that we define as evildoers. And for this reason, he tells the backstories of some of these others. So Mm -hmm. that we here in the U.S. can actually see our common humanity with these people and not as simply collateral damage. I want to say at the onset that I believe that American lives are not worth a penny more than non-American lives around the world. But you can gauge, you can gauge how a society is going to view uh, people that are not its citizens by how it's treating its citizens. And the lengths to which it will go to kill or deny rights to its own citizens speaks volumes to how it views the rest of the world. And for that reason, I want to tell you the story about some American citizens that were killed by their own government. Because to me, it speaks to a much bigger issue about who we are as a society 
and what this administration uh, is doing with its foreign policy. On September 30, 2011, President Obama was faced with a decision. And that decision was whether or not to pull the trigger on an operation that he knew would result in the killing of an American citizen who had not been charged with a crime. And for President Obama, the decision was an easy one, and he authorized that strike. And on September 30, 2011, President Obama authorized a drone strike in the north of Yemen that killed an American citizen named Anwar al-Laki. Alongside al-Laki in that attack was a, another American, a Pakistani American named Samir Khan. And those two were killed in this operation authorized by President Obama. That afternoon, President Obama spoke at uh, Fort Myer. And he said that a dangerous terrorist, Anwar al-Laki, uh, was killed today in Yemen. He didn't say that the United States killed Anwar al-Laki. He just said that he was killed in Yemen. And he identified him as being the head of external operations for al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, a label that no journalist I know and no Yemeni I know had ever heard applied to Anwar al-Laki before. Now, who was Anwar al-Laki? I'm sure many people have seen the YouTube videos of him, where he's wearing a camouflage jacket, in front of a black flag, uh, calling for armed jihad, saying, I, I call on the youth in the West to either rise up in their own countries or to join us the, and the Mujahideen in the fronts of jihad around the world. And he was specifically calling on people to attack the United States in acts of armed violence. No question about that. And that's 99.9% .9 of the story that's presented when anyone talks about Anwar al-Laki. But who was Anwar al-Laki, and how did he get to become the guy in front of that YouTube video with the camouflage jacket and the black flag? And on 9-11, he was the imam at a large Islamic center, the Dar al-Hijra Mosque. And when 9-11 happened, uh, Anwar al-Laki became a sort of media celebrity in the United States, not among the alternative media, but the corporate media. And the reason he was a celebrity is because he would be interviewed on NPR or profiled in the Washington Post or interviewed on the NewsHour with Jim Lehrer because what he was saying is, I condemn the terrorists who committed the 9-11 attacks and I believe that Al-Qaeda is perverting the religion of Islam. But he also was calling for caution against criminalizing the religion of Islam and was condemning the attacks that were happening against the Muslim community in the United States. He became a guy that, for the corporate media, was helping to make sense of the experience of many American Muslims in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. In fact, he was considered to be such a mainstream member of society that he was invited by the Pentagon to give, speak, be the keynote speaker at a Pentagon luncheon soon after 9-11. And just to give you a sense on how bad the intelligence was at the time of the Pentagon, one of the things that they served at this luncheon was a bacon sandwich when Imam Anwar al-Laki was speaking to them. Al-Laki, though, while he was speaking in public and saying he went so far as to say that the United States had a right to go into Afghanistan militarily to pursue those responsible for 9-11, which was very much in sync with the mainstream of American popular opinion at the time. Anwar al-Laki, though, was dealing with something else behind the scenes. And that was that he was being 
investigated and interrogated by the FBI. He was hearing the stories of Muslims that would come into his mosque about their businesses being vandalized. One woman, soon after 9-11, Muslim woman from his community, was beaten in a hate attack with a baseball bat and stumbled into the mosque. 1,200 Muslims were detained around the United States in the aftermath of the attacks. Muslim charities were targeted. Muslim-owned businesses were visited by the FBI. We now know part of the extent to which the CIA was working with the NYPD in targeting Muslim restaurants and Muslim establishments. This was happening in a very intense way after 9-11, and Awlaki was dealing with it. And they were questioning him about the fact that some of the 9-11 hijackers had come to sermons at his mosques, and they were trying to see if there was a link between Awlaki and the 9-11 hijackers. And Awlaki was under this tremendous pressure from the US government, and he was responding to many of the people coming into his mosque and hearing their stories at a time when the US was gearing up to invade Iraq. And he started to become politicized in a very different way. And his sermon started to take on a sharper tone. And ultimately, he decided that he wanted to leave the United States. So he goes to Britain for a while, and then back to Yemen. And he thinks he wants to go and pursue more courses in Islamic scholarship when he's back in Yemen. While he's there, his sermons are becoming more and more popular around the world because he's weaving in stories about racial politics. He was talking about the witch hunts in the uh, black community and immigrant communities in Britain. He was tying them uh, to Quranic verses and stories from the Quran and talking using pop, pop cultural references that resonated with a lot of young people. And his sermons started to pop up in investigations into terror plots in Britain, the United States, and Canada. And the US began to put pressure on the Yemeni government to silence Anwar al-Awlaki because of his speech at the time. And al-Awlaki continued to record these sermons, and they were being sold in CDs. And then when the internet started to become the internet, they were getting downloaded. And in 2006, al-Awlaki is arrested in Yemen and put in prison on trumped up charges that he had intervened in a tribal dispute. These were charges by the Yemeni government. And he spent 18 months in prison, 17 of them in solitary confinement. The FBI came and interrogated him while he was in that prison. And the United Nations investigated it and determined that his incarceration was extra legal. So Anwar al-Awlaki was, in, in a sense, a political prisoner. He was in that prison at that point. There were no allegations that he had been involved with any terror plots. They didn't like what he was saying. They said, well, his sermons are, are inspiring young Muslims in the West to engage in terror plotting. Uh, but there was no concrete evidence he was involved with anything. He believed firmly that the United States was directly responsible for his imprisonment. During the course of my reporting, I was able uh, to discover that he was right. Uh, yeah, listening to that, uh, he really connects it all to this exceptionalism, uh, mm -hmm. this mentality, which now extends to the right to attack, invade, occupy any country they perceive as a threat, or to kidnap, or imprison, torture, and even kill people on the flimsiest of pretexts, or with deeply flawed signals intelligence. They don't even know who these people are with no regard for their human rights, much less their rights under the US Constitution in places like Guantanamo, or that the limitations imposed by the UN Charter or the Geneva Conventions 
or the Nuremberg Principles or the International Court of Justice simply do not apply to the United States in its pursuit of its vital national interests. Hearing this, I was struck by how accurately this description fits another country. That country is, of course, Israel. That got me to thinking how strange it is that Israel has not even been mentioned in any of the coverage that I've seen or heard on this 20th anniversary of 9-11. Clearly, Osama bin Laden's uh, hatred of Israel and his uh, hatred of their treatment of the Palestinians, uh, not just Osama, but uh, Saudi Arabia in general has long history of that. Uh, <clears throat> granted, there's been little or no conversation about the motivations of the 19 men, of whom were Saudis, to sacrifice their own lives to carry out this mission on 9-11 under the orders of Osama bin Laden. The 9-11 Memorial and Museum at Ground Zero, from what I've read, never engages the visitor to even consider why this terrible event happened. Well, in his letter to America in 2002, from wherever he was hiding in Pakistan or Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden directly seeks to answer those questions. Why did you do such an evil thing? While listing America's decades of attacks and interventions against Muslim nations, and especially against Palestinians, and America's support of Israel, regardless of their illegal occupation and ongoing theft of Palestinian land since 1967. He condemns US support for Israel's invasion and, and occupation of Southern Lebanon in 1982, and for the killings of Muslims in Iraq during the first Gulf War under Bush one. He just as forcibly condemns US support for brutal regimes in the Arab Gulf states including the regime of Saudi Arabia. He strongly rebukes the US for their stationing of infidels troops in the Holy Land of Muhammad, Saudi Arabia, both during and for nine years after the first Gulf War. And what for all practical purposes are permanent basis. And for their brutal sanctions regime against Saddam that resulted in the deaths of over half a million Iraqi children. Uh, and there's a chilling uh, interview of uh, 60 Minutes uh, correspondent Leslie Stahl questioning Secretary of State Madeleine Albright about the horrendous human cost of these sanctions. You want to hear it? Let's hear that. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children then died when, when, in, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. The price is worth it. So what does that calculate the value of a single Iraqi child, huh? That's right. What's the worth? Um, a few and, pennies. <laughs> yeah, and Madeleine Albright was... Secretary of State? Secretary of State under Clinton. And uh, he, you know, she yeah. was held up as a great heroine as the first 
female secretary of state. And that's going to just work wonders for mm -hmm. how we deal with the world because we'll have a, a woman in that position. <laughs> yeah. So you can't really guarantee on humanity just because uh, a lady is in office. <laughs> so it appears that bin Laden and most likely his operatives on 9-11 also lived by the code of never forget. One of the most heartrending events on these anniversaries of 9-11 is the solemn reading of the names of each of the over 3,000 dead. And I have seen that covered on television. Uh, you see the, all the families of these people gathered. Uh, you can just see the grief, uh, the, the deep, deep sorrow that's caused and it you know you'd have to have uh, a heart uh, you'd have to have Dick Cheney's heart not to be moved to tears by something like that <laughs> uh, you know it's and it's it's and it's entirely fitting and proper that this is done um, but for me accepting that only brings out in stark relief our own collective either inability or refusal to say the names of even a tiny number of those who have died at the hands of our military or our law enforcement or our criminal justice system or our defunded dysfunctional public health infrastructure resulting in the world's worst toll of the COVID pandemic. Where today, every 36 hours, 3,000 lives are lost. Or our cruel rationing of health care to those who can afford to purchase it. Or the brutal dictatorships across the globe, which we have supported in return for their business-friendly approach. For a brief time, following the police murder of George Floyd, it seemed to me that the tide had turned as millions of people, black, brown, even white people, rose up here in the United States and around the globe, demanding justice shouting or carrying signs with say their names and Black Lives Matter. Sadly, due to the cowardice or outright racist attitudes of our political class, nothing transformative or close to that appears to be likely to happen. But hold everything this week Maybe, just maybe, we can take the first small step toward our long-avoided moral reckoning. Yes, and it's all around another American failure, the loss of the war in Iraq, in Afghanistan. With all the mainstream media and digital media in the US and worldwide anxiously following 
another crushing U.S. military defeat and the ensuing chaos in Kabul, our vaunted drone warfare was exposed for the whole world to see as a fraud and a war crime. The official line of a drone attack thwarting an imminent threat by taking out an ISIS-operated car headed to the airport, loaded with explosives. Secondary explosions indicating the presence of explosives in the car. The failure to mention any civilian casualties at the time. Well, that might have been all anyone would have ever known about this if it had happened in the 95% of Afghanistan where there is no one to conduct an independent investigation. But this was in Kabul and there was press that did investigate and showed clearly that the car was parked in a private homes compound 10 kilometers from the airport, that no ISIS connected people were involved, that the containers in the car were water jugs, and that 10 innocent people, including a well-respected aid worker for a US relief company and an assistant and seven children were killed by the Hellfire missile with no evidence of secondary, secondary explosions. Well, after more than two weeks of stonewalling, the general in command of US Central Command admitted that the original report was a lie. Well, not exactly. He just said the attack was a tragic mistake. Well, we all make mistakes, right? They don't often kill kids. <laughs> well, <clears throat> and whatever mistake was made, it was a done, uh, with a drone strike based on faulty intelligence, the same people who provide the intelligence for that strike, they provide the intelligence for all the drone strikes over the last 20 years. Well, but this one, this one was carried out center stage with the whole world watching. Well, this cannot be allowed to stand without accountability for these wrongful deaths. The grief-stricken family must be allowed to share with us the names of each of the dead children. Show us pictures from their lives, like the pictures of the dead children we saw from Sandy Hook that Jeremy mentioned in his speech. Tell us about them, what they love to do, what they were like with each other and their friends for the older children, their hopes and dreams for a life without war. We may have to rely on true journalists like those at The Intercept or Al Jazeera, like Amy Goodman or Michael Moore to get this done. And then to use social media and every other lever of power and influence to mobilize the American people. But confronted the, with the humanity of these children and their families? Is it too much to hope that we as a people might still possess the capacity to feel genuine compassion or remorse, to make a moral choice, to speak out, 
and take a stand against what we have passively allowed this quote unquote exceptional nation to become? As citizens of a country whose government claims to exercise its power from the consent of the governed, we too are accountable. Well, you know, Jeremy said um, earlier about find the name. And when you ever hear anybody talk about uh, collateral damage, just mention the name. And I got two. And tell a little about them. Okay. Yeah. And tell a little bit, little bit about them. Um, their, their names are Ayat, A-Y-A-T, and Samaya. They were two two-year-old toddlers who, as normal, came rushing up to their dad or uncle when they drive into the compound. And Ayat and Samaya, two two-year-old toddlers, mm. killed by the United States, killed by the United States. And if we don't get the idea Maybe we'll antagonize somebody else like China and we'll really get our nose bloodied. We've got to stop, Harvey. I don't think it's a matter of what will happen to us if we don't, if we don't change because the consequences are already being seen and felt in this country. If you look at uh, the use of police uh, and the film footage, from Ferguson, you know, it could just as easily be footage from Fallujah. The, exactly. war is, the war is coming home, it's come home. We have militias now who openly flaunt military grade weapons. We have, um, <clears throat> you know, law enforcement that kills on average a thousand citizens a year you know, completely uh, dwarfing any other country's uh, record of that. We, we have 35,000 people a year dying from gun violence. We had, oh, was it, I forget now if it's 60,000 or 90,000 drug overdoses from people uh, with diseases of despair. Uh, it's all of a piece, you know, and we have all these horrendous uh, fires and floods and, uh, you know, natural disasters directly related to the uh, rapacious behavior of the fossil fuel industry. Um, I mean, we're not going to be exempt from the suffering and death that we so easily inflict on others. And until we can reorient our country into one, you know, like Jeremy says, one that actually has some moral principles that it lives by. And we have the principles that are in, enshrined in the Declaration of Independence in our Constitution, <laughs> but they're just words on paper. So, well, let's think about. I know we, we you know, and I'm, um, I know. People might think, okay, it, th yeah, there's other things we could talk about, but we need to pound this. Just like 
in sixth grade, uh, teaching sixth graders. Uh, they're more able to learn and incorporate the lesson if you repeat it. Yes, and 9-11 uh, was pivotal. Yeah. Even though compared to the carnage that so many of our own militaries attacks have wreaked on other countries, uh, it, it was relatively minor. But, but what it has done to us as a nation under the uh, so-called leadership of the Bushes and and following him, Obama and, and Trump. Um, there it is. So how are we going to end this? How, how are we going to end this song, uh, The show. We what we song? We got to have a song, right? You know, I thought a good song should be a song by a Muslim. So I thought Peace Train would be nice. So here is Yusuf Islam, or as you may know him, Cat Stevens. Have a great week. Hello. Oh, wow.